So again, my name is Rusin. My family and I have been attending Orangewood since May of 2015. I want to thank you for all of you who've been so warm in your welcome of us. Uh, Jeff's not here for me to thank personally, but he's been a really good and dear friend, and we feel very fortunate to be able to uh, worship here as a family. And our children have been in the part of Orangewood, uh, Orangewood Christian School for about four, four and a half years now, and that's been a wonderful experience for us as well. Um, unlike Jeff, I don't have these long preambles and introductions, and so I'm more traditional in my approach to preaching. So I'm going to read the passage for us. And then I'm going to pray, and then we're going to jump right in. But I selected Psalm 42 for us this morning. It's not the most happy of songs, kind of like the women's retreat, but it's, <laughs> but it's, it's helpful. It's encouraging. I think it might be what we need uh, this morning. So Psalm 42, you'll find it in your worship folder, the screen above me, or in your Bibles if you brought them. Psalm 42, beginning with verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams... So pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? My tears have been my food day and night, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God, with loud shouts and songs of praise, a multitude-keeping festival. Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation, my my God. My soul is cast down within me. Therefore, I remember you from the land of Jordan and of Hermon, from Mount Mazar, deep calls to deep at the roars of your waterfalls. And all your breakers and your waves have gone over me. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to the God of my life. I say to God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of the enemy? As with deadly wounds in my bones, my adversaries taunt me, while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Why are you cast down, O my soul? And why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. If you would, please pray with me. Father in heaven, we don't often like to face it, but there's at times throughout the day, the week, the year, we can resonate with this writer. Uh, We want to have an appetite for you, Lord Jesus, that's carefully cultivated and deeply expansive. We want to have this deep and rich, vibrant walk with you, but we often recognize that we feel distance from you. Father, many of us right now, when we pray, we feel like those prayers bounce off the ceiling, and there's dryness to the wells of our soul and our life. Father, we would love to see Jesus this morning. Would you be Please to come in your preached word and meet us and help us to see the author and finisher of our salvation. The one who intercedes on our behalf and lives for us, who died for us and has given us his very righteousness and inheritance. Help us to see him and find ourselves in him. And we pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen. New Year's resolutions are made to be broken. It's January 3rd, we're two days in, and I bet most of us have found creative ways to get off track already. 
Now, some of those resolutions that we make are built around our spirituality. So we might go, you know, like this year I like to read my, the whole Bible through. I like to pray more. Maybe I can jump into a community group. For some of you, it's like, I want to come more regularly to worship. So if that's your New Year's resolution, you're 100% faithful right now. Rejoice. You're doing great. The problem, well, I guess latent behind most New Year's resolutions, when they come to our spirituality, is this genuine desire to have a robust, a rich, a dynamic spiritual life with God. It's what Jonathan Edwards, the great theologian, called experimental religion, where we have a sense of the gloriousness and the beauty of God upon our hearts, where our doctrine isn't something that stays in our head, but something that we feast on as we rejoice in the grace of God as it's tangible in our lives. Or J.C. Ryle, the great Anglican preacher, called it vital religion, a religion that transforms our souls and helps us to fight for God and live in him and enjoy him and meet him in the word and prayer and to rejoice in him and worship. If our worship life, our spiritual life was like a fire, it, for most of us, we look at it and go, I wish this was more robust. I wish this was bigger. I wish this was larger. And we're constantly looking for ways to put wood on it to grow that fire. You see, there's a shadowy side to the topic of our spiritual life. As we talk about having a deep, rich, vibrant walk with God, underneath that is many years of failed resolutions. Many years of of being stagnant in our walk with God and not knowing what's going on. And so the shadowy side of our New Year's resolutions is spiritual dryness, spiritual decline, spiritual drought. Now, it's a real reality for all of us. For any of you who've been walking with Jesus for more than 20 years, you know that you go in and out of spiritual droughts. They're inevitable. They're not only inevitable, they're considerable. When they hit you, they always take you sideways. Even if you know you're going to have one, once you're in the midst of one, it's overwhelming. It's defeating. It drains you of your energy, and you're wondering where God went. But the weird thing about us Christians, when we get into a church, is we rarely talk about it. There's so much shame wrapped up in our spirituality that when we're in a drought, we're ashamed or afraid to talk about when we're in a drought, when it's actually inevitable and for many of us, considerable. And the reality right now is probably over 50% of us in the room are currently spiritually dry or in a drought. So what do we do? Well, this morning I want to start off with a litmus test, maybe an inventory you could say, based off of Octavius Winslow's classic work, Personal declension or revival of religion of the soul. I know all of you have it on your bedside. I know you read it. It's a New York Times bestseller. It's fantastic. So you're probably wondering, who is Octavius Winslow? This is who Charles Spurgeon went to learn about the gospel. When Charles Spurgeon began to grow in his preaching of the gospel of God's grace, his master, his teacher was Winslow. So it's a great place for us to go as well. So here's our litmus test. First of all, do you have a sense of your adoption? Do you have a sense of the gloriousness that you have a Father in heaven who absolutely adores you and can't get enough of you? And do you live out of that reality? Secondly, is there sensitivity in your life to the leadership of the Holy Spirit? Are you keeping step with him? Do you feel his presence? Is he leading you, teaching you, convicting you, encouraging you? Third, do you experience the righteousness of God that Jesus so freely gave to you on the cross? Does it take you above and out of yourself? Does he give you free and near access to a throne of grace where you feel like you can run to Jesus whenever you want? Does that righteousness forth give you quick and specific confession in your life? 
Uh, Because you realize that sin no longer defines you, you're quick to take it to the cross of Christ because that's the only place it belongs. Fourth, do you have joy? Joy because God is for you, he's in you, and he's with you. And that joy kind of transcends the hardships that you're presently experiencing. Sixth, do you carry your trials to the heart of God? Do you believe that and experience a God who loves you and wants to know every trivial, mundane, and important thing and hard thing in your life and wants to journey with those things with you? Seventh, do you enjoy digging into God's word? Are you experiencing him in it? Is it something you look forward to where you experience the almighty, majestic God speaking to you, encouraging you in his word? Eighth, are you looking for moments to steal away to spend time with Jesus? Ninth, is the gospel sweet to you? Is it real, vibrant, powerful, encouraging, and bearing fruit in your life? And if I can quote Octavius for the tenth one, In a word, is Jesus the sustenance of your life, the source of your sanctification, the springhead of your joys, the theme of your song, the one glorious object on which your eyes ever resting, the mark towards which thou art ever pressing. This is what Jesus died to do on the cross for us. When he sat there experiencing scorn and shame, on the other side, the glory he saw was the glory of him giving his Holy Spirit to us, renewing us, transforming us, filling us up and changing us that we might abide in him, enjoy him, experience his lavish grace and love. So how did it go with the litmus test? How did you measure on the inventory? If you're like me, you're like, Is 5 out of 10 a passing grade? I mean, what do I do? Now that we're sufficiently inspired and probably depressed, let's look at this morning at the symptoms of spiritual drought, the source of spiritual droughts, and the solution for spiritual droughts. Symptoms, source, solution. We'll begin with the symptoms of spiritual drought. What I love about Psalm 42 is the author is very clear. He's very prolific. He has a lot to say, and he has a lot to actually inform us on the very symptoms of spiritual drought. Here's the first one. Are you experiencing deprivation? Look at verse 1. As a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. See, a deer panting is a very strange and abnormal thing. For those of you who have dogs, they pant all the time. It's like they forget to drink water and they look, they're about to die of thirst and you get them their water bowl and they're fine. Deers are far more intelligent. They know where their active water streams are. You rarely see them panting. So if you see a deer panting, he's by a stream that's no longer active and it's an urgent situation. He's dying for the taste of water. And so the psalmist is helping us to see he's dying for the taste of God's presence. He's lost something. It's like he lost his child versus his bookmark. He lost something extremely dear and important to him, and he's dying to get it back. See, when you're spiritually dry, you're yearning for God. What about you? Where are you with deprivation? The second symptom here is, are you experiencing a deficit or an absence? Look at verse 2. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. When shall I come and appear before God? See, there's a clear absence for him. He's missing the presence of God. It literally says in the Hebrew, be seen by the face of God. He misses God's face and presence. See, when we're spiritually dry, we're missing the presence of God in our life. How are you? Look at the third symptom. Are you downcast? 
experiencing sorrow. Look at verses 3 and then 5 and 11. Verses 3. My tears have been my food day and night while they say to me all day long, where is your God? Now there's this hyperbole. He's trying to express the depth of his sorrow. But look at verses 5 and 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? See, to be cast down is to be experiencing turmoil. It's to be disturbed or distressed. It's to be sad and restless and uneasy, both in our walk with God and life in general. See, when we're spiritually dry, we're off kilter. We're uneasy. We're sad. How are you? Look at the fourth symptom. Are you disoriented or overwhelmed? Look at verse 7. Deep calls to deep at the roar of your waterfalls. All your breakers and your waves have gone over me. See, Mount Hermon is this mountain range in Israel that's about 9,000 feet over sea limit. Now, what's interesting about that mountain range is it has these beautiful cascading waterfalls. And if you're a tourist, you'd be overwhelmed by the beauty and the magnificence of them. But the author of Psalm 42 is turning around, talking about how these waterfalls are a picture of his torment, his drowning, his distress, and how he's overwhelmed. And see, when you're spiritually dry, you tend to get a little bit overwhelmed. You get unsure of your footing spiritually. How are you? Fifth, are you disrupted or out of sync? Look at verse 4. These things I remember as I pour out my soul, how I go with the throng and lead them in the procession to the house of God with glad shouts and songs of praises, a multitude-keeping festival. So the, the author of Psalm 42 was, you know, he's part of the, the guild that wrote a lot of the Psalms in the scriptures. He was a worship leader and he was used to celebrating with his people, going to the Passover and the first fruits and tabernacle. And he would lead the procession from his hometown and lead his people in singing and celebrating God's grace. And journey was half of the celebration. And for some reason, he can no longer do that. He's cut off from those rhythms of grace in his life. He's caught off from being able to worship and being in community and being in the word and prayer. And it's irregular and it has him out of sync. And when you're spiritually dry, you get out of sync of those rhythms of God's grace. Where you meet with God in scripture and worship and God's people and prayer. How are you? Six. The sixth sentence here is, do you feel duped or foolish? Verses 9 and 10, I say to my God, my rock, why have you forgotten me? Why do I go mourning because of the oppression of my enemy? As a deadly wound in my bones, my adversaries taunt me while they say to me all day long, where is your God? The psalmist feels forgotten, literally out of God's mind. There's the phrase here, there's wounds in my bones. It literally says murder. You see, he's getting taunts from his adversaries. Those who do not worship God and follow God are making a fool of him, and he now feels foolish. Their taunts and words are injuring him and he has no internal response. He feels like an idiot for following God. See, when you get spiritually dry, you begin to become foolish. You feel foolish and feel embarrassed about your faith. How are you? Seven symptoms, the worst one of them all. Are you disengaged? See, there's one thing to to know you're spiritually dry and to feel urgency and depression and to feel the absence of God. It's worse when you don't feel any of those things. As C.S. Lewis noted about Psalm 42, this author has a huge appetite for God. That's been clearly cultivated and that's expansive. The worst thing that can happen for us when we become spiritually dry or in a spiritual drought is that we just don't care. 
Our spiritual drought, our dryness becomes the new normal. We don't expect anything more, and our Christian faith becomes mundane as we become more and more dead to the leadership of the Holy Spirit in our life. See, when you're spiritually dry or in a drought, you become disengaged. What about you? I am no stranger to spiritual droughts. I've been following Jesus for 25 years, and I've had numerous spiritual droughts. I've been a church planner in Chapel Hill, and I remember experiencing a severe one in the midst of leading a church, and that's a very difficult place to find yourself in. The reality is I actually had one in 2015, and I say that to show you that there's no shame in owning your spiritual droughts. And the reality, if we're ever going to experience God's grace and be renewed within the midst of our spiritual droughts, we have to be owned, we have to own them, to name them, to be in community and to be able to say, I'm dry and I need your help. Now that we've looked at the symptoms of spiritual drought, I want us to look at the source of spiritual drought. Let's get at the heart of our spiritual doubts. What are the root causes? Well, one root cause may be sin. What's clear from all of Scripture is if you have unrepentant sin in your life, things that are opposed to God's grace and law for you, His best desires and wishes for you, if you're holding on to sin that you're refusing to repent of, that can be a clear reason for your spiritual drought. But what's interesting about this passage is it's not in there. And what I love about what Psalm 42 does is saying, yeah, 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 you already know sin can be a cause. But there's a lot more reasons you might be spiritually dry. So let's move in. Secondly, maybe not just sin, but the Spirit of God. Now, this may be a little hard for us to hear, but God may intentionally remove our awareness of him for a season to grow us. And now, it's never fun when that happens, but just think about for a moment the benefit of that. When God puts us in these seasons, we're not really aware of his grace and love. It teaches us to lean in more closely to him, to run to him, to cultivate certain spiritual muscles we normally don't, so that when we get back to connecting to his grace, we're so much more grateful and thankful for what we have in him. You see, God's more interested. God's, God, God wants us to abide and enjoy his love. And one of the means he does that is by removing our awareness of his love. So it may be sin that creates spiritual droughts. It may be the Spirit of God removing his presence of him. What about the third one, self-soothing? Now, a lot of us, when we experience hardships in our life, we end up in these situations where we're experiencing pain, frustration, confusion, laments that we just don't want to deal with. And what we do is often we go to like good things to take the edge off of life. We may go to food, drink, movies, dramas. I love going to Netflix. But we go to things just to take a little bit of the edge off. And one of the reasons we get spiritual dry is God's bringing things to the surface for us to engage, that he might meet us in those things and transform us. But we're constantly taking the edge off of life, and we're trying to numb down what we're experiencing. We're unable to meet God and what he's presently doing in our life, and we grow dry. But I think by far the most um, heightened root cause for our spiritual droughts is self-reliance. Us North Americans, we're highly independent. We are self-sufficient. We are resourceful. We're used to going after things, tackling them, and succeeding. And that makes us horrendous at following Jesus at times. Think about it. We have this expert mentality. If you're really good at one thing, you tend to think you're good at other things as well. My dad's a superstar brainiac in biostatistics. And because of that, he thinks he knows everything. 
The reality is I'm like him too. Once I start getting good at something, I start thinking I know everything as well. And the reality is most of you in this room have, are really good at something. And you've been good at it for a while. And then you start thinking, well, because I throw myself my best resource at other problems, I should be able to throw myself at my spiritual problems and everything should be okay. And so we try to fix ourselves and we're used to success, but we realize it doesn't work that way with our spirituality, does it? See, one of our problems in our self-reliance is we hate to be weak. We hate to be needy. We hate to be dependent. Uh, God just, I think that was the lesson God wanted to teach me in 2015. I'm used to being very resourceful. I'm aptly gifted for what I do. And I'm used to throwing myself at things and succeeding. And God's been showing me this year that weakness is a beautiful thing. That weakness is a key to spiritual renewal. That weakness is a portal to knowing the provision and the strength and the might of God. That it's in our weakness we begin to see the power of God displayed. It's in our humility that we see God's provision. It's in our dependence in him that we begin to see his faithfulness transform us and those around us. Let's bring it down for a second. Think about the circles you run in. When's the last time someone confessed self-reliance to you? Think about the community groups you participate in. When you you would go around and you share what's wrong with you, right? You always have one of those sessions at some point. And they're mundane or they're typical, but no one just says, you know, I'm just the most proud, arrogant, self-reliant person in the world. Would you pray for me? You never hear that. Or think about the other way. When's the last time one of your friends came to you and wanted counsel on how to be more biblically weak and dependent on God? When's the last time someone said, I'm really proud and arrogant, I want to be more humble, will you help me? Self-reliance isn't just a problem, it's a pandemic, it's an epidemic within ourselves and our congregation. And it's one of the root reasons for our spiritual dryness. We're not alive and vibrant with God because we're just trying to apply ourselves to the problem. And that is the problem. We've looked at the sources of our spiritual drought as we looked at the symptoms. But now, let's spend the remainder of our time looking at the solutions for spiritual drought. So what do you do? Maybe, I've, maybe God's worked in the sermon. You're like, okay, okay, I'm, I'm spiritually dry. I, I'm in a drought, and it's me. I'm self-reliant. Now what do I do? Well, first, look what the psalmist does. He refuses to settle. He refuses to settle. He resists the status quo of his Christian walk. It's an all-out war. He's not okay with being spiritually dry. He's actually fully engaged in challenging the status quo of his life. Even though C.S. Lewis is quoted in this specific way way too many times, I still love this quote for the sermon. C.S. Lewis said this, It would seem that our Lord finds our desires not too strong but too weak. We are half-hearted creatures fooling about with drink and sex and ambition when infinite joys offered us. Like an ignorant child who wants to go making mud pies in a slum because he cannot imagine what is meant by the offer of a holiday at the sea. We are far too easily pleased. Even though this was written many years ago, it aptly describes Christians in today's church. We're satisfied with the little bit of Jesus that we have in our lives as opposed to waging war against the status quo of the mundane nature of our Christian lives and experiencing the explosive power of the gospel in our lives. He refuses to settle. Do you refuse to settle? Are you waging a war against the status quo of your spiritual life? Secondly, he pours out his soul in prayer. 
He literally says, I pour out my soul in this psalm. This psalm is one long sustained prayer. It's honest. It's deep. It's raw. It's real. This psalm explores his doubts, his longings, his desires. His heart's fully engaged as he's reflecting on his confusion and his frustrations. And he doesn't clean it up for God. And he doesn't happy up. He doesn't try to pretend everything's okay. He's actually being a a transparent human being who's real. He's not emotionally bottled up, kind of stuffing down whatever is kind of going on in his heart. But he's letting it come to the surface. And he's praying that all the way through with his heavenly father. What about you? Are you pouring out your soul in prayer to your God in heaven? Third, as he talks to himself. No, I mean, the Bible tells you to talk to yourself. Let me show you how. Verses 5 and 11. Why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise in my salvation and my God. D. Martin Lowe-Jones, a well-known preacher in like Presbyterian traditions from the, the big island somewhere, he said this on this very topic. Have you realized that most of your unhappiness in life is due to the fact that you're listening to yourself instead of talking to yourself? Think about it. Your soul, your heart is that deepest part of you. It's where your emotions, your will, your affections, your reasoning all kind of abide. And if you think about your deepest part of you, all sorts of horrendous things come out of there. There are all sorts of wrong, fearful, and unbelieving thoughts that just come foolishly out. And if we listen to every one of those thoughts and ideas and feelings, it would lead us to derangerous paths. And what I love about the psalmist here is he starts talking to his soul and he grabs his soul by the scruff of the neck and he starts talking to himself because he realizes he needs course correction and engagement. So what do you do when your soul is living in guilt? Do you you grab your soul by the neck and say, look, soul, you've been saved. Jesus died once and all for all your sins. The penalty has been paid. You're cherished and loved. What do you do when your soul is telling you that there's no power for you in the present sin you're abiding, fighting? When you feel like you're stuck and that sin is winning. Do you grab your soul by the neck, the scruff, and go, look, soul, there's Jesus inside of you. The power that raised him from the dead is the power inside of you by the Holy Spirit. And that power by the gospel is here to renew you. You are now dead to sin and you're alive to God in Christ. What do you do when you're hopeless and you see no end to the trials in your life and you're wondering if everything's ever going to change? Do you grab your soul and look at your soul and say, look, soul, one day the presence of sin will be eradicated in this world. One day you'll be in the new heavens and new earth and you will rejoice with Jesus forever in a perfect body. There'll be no more sin and death and you will rejoice forever. Your soul takes you to horrible places. Do you talk to yourself? What do you do? The fourth thing, the fourth remedy, the fourth solution here that the psalmist gives us is he intensifies his spiritual disciplines. Look at verse 8. By day the Lord commands his steadfast love, and at night his song is with me, a prayer to God of my life. You see, the psalmist is doubling down on his spiritual discipline. He's intensifying. He's lost something near to him, near and dear to him, so now he needs more, not less. 
Uh, in 2010 or 2009, I was a church planner in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. I had just come out of a big spiritual drought and I had an opportunity to go to a pastor's conference for a bunch of church planners in North America, of which Tim Keller was a speaker. And one of the, the breakout sessions where he was talking about his spiritual life, we were asking lots of questions, and then something beautiful happened. Tim Keller was sitting with a group of 30 of us and said, you know, I just came out of a spiritual drought, and I have spiritual droughts often. And that was a liberating moment for me as a young church planner. I was like, my hero, the Tim Keller has spiritual droughts. That's awesome, because I have spiritual droughts too. So instead of feeling like a loser for going through a spiritual drought, I realized, no, this is what us ministers and human beings and Christians do. We go through spiritual droughts. And then, like, I think everyone in the room perked up. We're like, really? Tim Keller, spiritual droughts? So the hands started going up. What did you do? What did you do? Tell us. Give us a game plan. And I love what Tim did. He began to describe his spiritual disciplines that he uses throughout the day. And he gave us two important concepts. One is there's a lot that he does. And secondly, he said something very profound. He says, you know, when I'm in a spiritual drought, I tend to double down on my spiritual disciplines for about two to four months. And it's about then I begin to experience God in fresh and new ways. That was extremely helpful to me as a church planner. It was liberating for me. I realized for my soul to fall, for me to reconnect with God, there is no quick fix. But if I double down my spiritual disciplines, I have an opportunity to meet with God months and months away. What about you? Are you doubling down and intensifying your spiritual disciplines? The fifth thing, the last thing I want to highlight here in the solutions is the psalmist remembers the gospel. Look at verse 6. Therefore, I remember you. If you paid attention to this psalm, there's so much intimate language scattered throughout it. Oh God, living God, my God, my salvation, with me, God of my life, God my rock, God in whom I take refuge, God of my exceeding joy. God's not a theoretical concept to the psalmist, but he has intimate language because he's personalized the gospel and he's personalized his relationship with God. We have an amazing gospel to personalize. Have you personalized it for yourself? When you remember the gospel, do you remember it with intimate language that connects you with your heavenly father? For example, we have a past tense, present tense, and a future tense gospel. Have you personalized the past tense gospel? When you wake up in the morning, do you remember the gospel that I've been called by God into his heavenly kingdom He's regenerated me and given me new life in this kingdom. He's adopted me into his heavenly family and given me all the rights and privileges of Jesus. He's chosen me out of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. He's justified me and has made me beautiful and scrumptious to the heavenly father. He's redeemed me from sin and death into his heavenly kingdom. He's made me a new creation. He sealed me by the Holy Spirit to keep me safe for the day where I receive my inheritance. And he has rooted me in his love. Do you celebrate and personalize remember the past tense gospel? But it's a present tense gospel. Do you celebrate that I have new faith this day, that Jesus lives to give me new power and new assurance today, that if I ask, he'll give me more influence of the Holy Spirit and new repentance and fresh love, 
that right now the Holy Spirit's renewing me to look more like Jesus. And right now Jesus is on his heavenly throne looking at me with his eyes fixed on me, praying for me, and his prayers never go unanswered. But we have a future tense gospel to personalize. The one day I'll be comforted in every full and perfect way. The one day I'll receive the inheritance of Jesus and together we'll reign over the new heavens and new earth. That one day I'll be glorified like Jesus is glorified. That one day I'll be blessed in the perfect sense of that word and made perfect. And one day I'll be fully satisfied in the deepest parts of how I am wired. That's the gospel. Do you faithfully, consistently remember it? Do you personalize it? Do you hide it in your heart? Do you scrap and fight and resist to live there? Look, we can take all these tools that the psalmist gives us in Psalm 42. They're like logs to go throw in that fire to grow our fire in our walk with God. But see, the reality is there's competing fires, aren't there? If a fire is something that gathers your imagination, your preoccupation, and your focus, the psalmist gives us logs to throw in our walk with God. But we all know of fires that can derail us. I like to end this morning with the story of my friend Mike McMichael. He's by far for me personally the most powerful picture of what it means to live off the fire of the gospel. When he was my age, his parents came into town and took his wife and his two kids on a quick trip to Shoney's or, I don't know, some fast food chain, to get some lunch. Sadly, a milk truck ran a red light and smashed into that vehicle. And in one fatal moment, Mike lost his wife, his parents, and his kids. To make things worse, Mike went into depression. When he got out of depression, he was in and out of work, and he started developing diabetes. Within 10 years, he lost one leg, He was on daily dialysis, and he was starting to lose another leg as well. And he was losing his eyesight. During his depression, he met a young lady, and they got married. Unknowingly, she she was a paranoid schizophrenic. And so his wife was off her meds and totally out of control. It's in that situation I found Mike. He reached out to a sister church, and then he reached out to me. And he was like, I want to know more about Jesus. Would you be willing to come over and talk with me? Yes. So for the next three years, I went over to his house weekly. We read books together. We went through the scriptures together. We had a great old time getting to know each other and learning more about Jesus together. And then one afternoon, Mike was sitting across from me, and he said, it's just not right, Rue. I'm like, oh boy, here we go again. And what's not right, Mike? It's not right that Jesus would have to die on the cross for me. It's just, it's wrong. It's unjust. Jesus should not have to die for me. I'm sinful. I'm messed up. He's perfect and he's God. It's literally wrong in heaven for him to have to die for anyone. I went, whoa, 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 Mike, stop right there. The only people who say that are Christians. I think you're a Christian now, Mike. Mike's, no, I'm not a Christian. Like, no, no, Mike. The only people who feel the, the hardship of the injustice of the cross are people who follow Jesus. He's like, can I ask you questions, Mike? He's like, Sure. Do you believe Jesus is the Son of God? Yes. Do you believe dying on the cross for your sins? Yes. Do you believe he's giving you the Holy Spirit so you can follow him? Yes. Are you saying now that you're turning away from your sins and you want to live in life for him only by his grace? Yes. Mike, you're a Christian. <laughs> now, the next, two, next year where I watched him lose his other leg and then lose his life was very powerful for me because he, was, he lost 
his family. He was losing his body. He was constantly in and out of hospitals. And there's this roaring fire in his life saying, don't believe in God. Don't follow him. And there was this other fire, which was built on the injustice of the cross. And I remember visiting Mike in the hospital before he passed away. And I got close to him because he was on a ventilator. And he took the ventilator off and he smiled and said, Rue, it's not right. What's not right, Mike? The injustice of the cross. That I would be a child of God. And that right soon, I'll rejoice with God forever with perfect feet. Do you see the power of the gospel? We have the opportunity to focus on things that are very difficult, hard things. Mike beats us all. He lost everything, his body and his family, and he could live off of that fire. But he chose to live by another fire, the fire of the gospel where Jesus and his beauty and perfection would come and live with us and die for us and make us righteous, that he would kiss death, that he would, in our place, take the justice of God and be cast out by him so that we may be cast in. And as Mike resonated and warmed himself by that fire, it gave him new life and now eternal life. Friends, what are you going to do when you leave this room? It's my encouragement that we all build a fire and go warm ourselves by the gospel and not leave it until it warms us all the way through that we stick ourselves to the gospel and we pour our souls over it and remember it and we preach it to each other and we preach it to our souls until it resonates within us, until we're like our friend Mike, walking around going, it's just not right that Jesus would die for a sinner like me. Let's pray together. Father, we need faith. We need you to give us faith to see Jesus. It's easy for us to get distracted by real difficult things in our life, but what we want is to see the one who's the author and the perfecter of our faith. Would you give us faith to pour over our souls to you? Would you give us faith to remember the gospel? Would you give us faith to talk to ourselves? Would you give us faith in our spiritual disciplines? Most of all, Lord, would you give us faith to see Jesus, to hide in him, to abide in him, to not settle for the spiritual dryness or droughts we might find ourselves in, but live to get our life and warmth and identity out of the gospel that we might be radiant fires for you. We pray this in your blessed name, Lord Jesus. Amen.